0: For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about the second prequel film, which is either much better or somehow worse than episode one, depending on who you ask. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during season three, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. So, after The Phantom Menace did the heavy lifting of introducing our main characters and the pre-Empire Galaxy, Attack of the Clones should have had a pretty easy job of it. It doesn't feel as stuffed to the gills as its predecessor to me, but it does have a fair bit going on, with wildly inconsistent results. As a trivial example, this is a film that will both show Archer g 2 struggling upstairs, and also has him flying under his own power. Let's get into the details. If the theme of Episode 1 was symbiotic circles, I think the theme of this one is convolution. Things are complex and gray in this movie, and that's very much intentional. The opening shot features the ships from Naboo doing slow barrel rolls to get oriented to Coruscant's gravity, suggesting that the people in those ships might have to adjust their idealistic attitudes to how things are done here. And how are they done here? Well, we see immediately that it's extremely cloudy, so they need to pick through the obstacles slowly and carefully. And when they finally land, their main ship blows up, and one of Padme's friends-slash-stunt doubles dies. You can't trust Coruscant for anything. I'm going to skip ahead for a moment and acknowledge that the assassination plot against Padme is the perfect distillation of this convolution theme. Newt Gunray had a grudge against her from the previous movie, so he made her death a precondition of joining Count Dooku's separatist alliance. Dooku hired Jango Fett, who subcontracted to the shapeshifter, bonus convolution, Zam Wessel, who sent a droid which delivered poisonous bugs to her room. It's a lot, folks. As we move through the movie, we keep up with this theme, at least in Obi-Wan's part of the story, with nothing being what it seems and everything having a mystery behind it. Kenobi finds his way to a planet that doesn't exist, we find out that a member of the Jedi Council ordered an army and must have died shortly thereafter. Both events apparently happened about ten years ago, so roughly contemporaneous with The Phantom Menace. The details of the clone army are also kind of nonsensical, if you don't know the whole Sith plot, in that it's intended for the Republic, but based on a bounty hunter who just tried to murder a Republic senator. Admittedly, he is a mercenary, but he does have a perfectly civil, if strained, conversation with Obi-Wan that later turns into a brawl and then a dogfight. What side are Jango and the Kaminoans on? Who knows? Given all that, it's understandable that Obi-Wan doesn't believe Count Dooku when the Separatist leader tells him that the Sith are in control of the Senate. Less understandable is why Dooku tells him this, beyond Lucas's interest in repeating beats in different ways. It's the dark middle chapter, so the villain has to tell the hero a truth they don't want to hear. But does Dooku really think he's going to recruit Obi-Wan here? I guess in his persona as the Separatist leader, another Jedi convert can only help his cause, lending the moral authority of the Order. But in his persona as a Sith Lord, telling a Jedi stalwart about Darth Sidious seems incredibly counterproductive. However, if we look at the equivalent moment in The Empire Strikes Back for context, maybe it does work. In that movie, Vader apparently sincerely wants Luke to join him and help him overthrow the Emperor. So maybe Dooku's goal here is to recruit Obi-Wan as a new apprentice to help him replace Sidious as the Master of the Sith? Makes more sense than anything else I can think of, but if you've got another theory, I'd love to hear it. Related to the convolution theme is this idea that the Jedi are currently hamstrung in their powers by... something that the Sith are doing. We see this in one of the first scenes as Chancellor Palpatine gravely asks Master Yoda if he really thinks it will come to war, and Yoda has to admit that he doesn't know, because of the Shroud of the Dark Side. I love this exchange, because it's absolutely plausible that the Chancellor would just ask the wisest of all Jedi what he thinks will happen, and also it gives Darth Sidious a chance to check in on how well his Shroud is working. Later on, we hear from Mace Windu and Yoda that apparently the entire Jedi Order has experienced this weakening in their ability to use the Force, but they don't want to tell anybody about it because the other kids might pick on them. It's noteworthy that the time we spend with Mace in this movie all seems to suggest he just has terrible judgment. With the previous exchange, eh, we don't have enough information to go on, but Yoda thinks it's a bad idea and Yoda is usually right. But we also hear from Mace that Count Dooku couldn't assassinate anyone. It's not in his character. Windu has also completely turned around on his opinion of Anakin, saying that the boy has exceptional skills and is probably the chosen one. This could just be character growth, it has been 10 years since episode 1, but he'll be super suspicious of Anakin again by episode 3, so this optimistic attitude really sticks out here. So let's talk a bit about Anakin in this movie. When we're introduced to the now technically an adult Anakin, he's wearing black, contrasting with Obi-Wan's white. I think this might be some kind of foreshadowing, but you know, reasonable people can disagree. We also get a real mixed bag of how Obi-Wan and Anakin interact. There are some caring exchanges about how Anakin looks tired or whatever, contrasted with some dick-measuring nonsense about whose magic senses are the most acute. There's also the extremely dark moment when Anakin is piloting their speeder in a steep dive, and Obi-Wan, clearly nervous, tells him to pull up and he just laughs maniacally. Speaking of that speeder chase, it's a bit of a showcase for Jedi performing absurd stunts. In episode one, we mostly saw the Jedi doing a bunch of active and occasionally acrobatic lightsaber fighting. But here, they jump from ludicrous heights through windows and casually catch dropped lightsabers that would have flown by a normal person without even being identified. At the end of the chase, in this movie's cantina, we take a quick detour from all these politics and high-speed chases to mosey on through our Western influences again. Lucas once described the Jedi as the Old West Sheriffs of the galaxy, and for my money, Anakin saying, Jedi business, go back to your drinks, after Obi-Wan has rather violently arrested a bounty hunter is the most Old West Sheriff moment in all of Star Wars. So on the one hand, Act 1 of the film wants to establish Anakin Skywalker, Padawan with promise. Sure, he cuts corners and is a bit sassy with his teacher, but he's a good kid who gets things done. On the other hand, Act 1 also goes out of its way to show Anakin being mentored by Palpatine, and specifically hearing that he's super gifted and once he learns how to trust his feelings, he'll be invincible. But on yet another hand, Act 1 of this movie has three hands, go with it, we also have to establish that Anakin is hopelessly infatuated with Padme. At first, we just do this by having him be weird and fumbling and honestly a bit creepy around her. She actually tells him, the way you're acting is making me uncomfortable. And while he technically apologizes, he does it with this leering half-smile that utterly undermines the whole relationship for me. I don't know if there's a word for the opposite of shipping, where you're actively rooting against a couple that does get together in a piece of media, but that's what I'm doing here. But Act 2 is where we bring in the big metaphor for their relationship, the infamous sand speech. This speech has been dunked on a thousand times, so here's what I love about it. Immediately beforehand, Padme has established, here in the lake country she grew up around, that she loves water. Anakin, who grew up around desert, hates sand. So we're identifying the pair of them with water and desert, and that's perfect. Because a desert is defined by its dryness, by its eternal thirst, if you want to get poetic and or cheeky about it. Desert is, by definition, incomplete. But you know what's just fine without anybody or anything? Water. To paraphrase the old saying, a lake needs a desert like a fish needs a bicycle. Now, to his credit, Anakin knows and acknowledges that he can't be rational about his feelings. But to his... debit. He's dumb and prideful and apparently seethes with anger all the time. The moment that, for me, shows their relationship is absolutely toxic and not tenable is when they arrive on Naboo and Padme starts discussing her plan with the officials there. Anakin gets all bent out of shape that she didn't run these arrangements by him, and actually seems to be on the verge of violence for a second before he consciously calms himself. While the foreshadowing is accurate to the abusive relationship this will definitely be, for me it really works against the storytelling goal of having the two of them be an actual romantic couple that I should be rooting for. As in most of the Star Wars movies, time is a bit fluid and hard to figure out exactly, but we're definitely no more than a few days away from Padme's speech about how she truly, deeply loves him, which may or may not be on the same actual day that he confessed to her that he murdered a village full of people down to the last child. Padme's speech in that moment is completely representative of a certain type of privileged male perspective on relationships. Anakin has done literally nothing to earn Padme's love this whole movie, and has made their fundamental incompatibility abundantly clear on several occasions. She shown no respect for her or her skills or even her autonomy, but she's still truly, deeply in love with him at the end, apparently on the strength of some giggling in a field that one time. All that said, if you ship Anakin and Padme, more power to you. It doesn't work for me, but I'm genuinely happy for you. Personally, I would have a much easier time with it if we weren't trying to establish the romance and foreshadow Anakin's fall in the same movie, which is yet another reason that spending a third of this trilogy with Anakin as a child seems like a bad move to me. But let's move on to those foreshadowings about Anakin's fall. These range from the subtle to the mildly genocidal. On the subtler end, we have his line to Padme, talking about Obi-Wan that, really, I'm ahead of him. This tells us that Anakin thinks of Jedi status as a sort of race or competition with a finish line, rather than a lifetime commitment to a philosophy. He's still thinking of Jedi-ness as a suite of powers, not a spiritual calling. Another subtle one is when he's showing off to Padme by levitating some fruit as they have a meal together. He comments, If Obi-Wan caught me doing this, he'd be very grumpy. But we never get any clarity from the film itself about why. I assume Anakin is correct about this, and it feels like this casual use of the Force, especially to show off, is more about his pride in being able to do it than any nobler motive. But is it actually, you know, of the dark side? I would argue that it is, actually. Remember that the binary the movies teach us about the light and the dark is that they are passivity versus control. Using the Force to defy gravity for no good reason is clearly not a passive act. What's doubly fascinating to me about this is that we see both Obi-Wan and (gasps) Yoda do the same thing in this very movie. Obi-Wan levitates his star map thingy back to himself as he's leaving Yoda's classroom in the scene with the younglings, and Yoda levitates his own lightsaber the six inches from his belt to his hand so he can look extra badass. This nicely continues the through-line from Phantom Menace that the Jedi Order in this time period has kind of lost its way, and sometimes is only giving lip service to its ideals. Leaving the subtle behind and moving into the sledgehammery, let's talk about the fridging of Shmi Skywalker. For the uninitiated, fridging is a term from comics criticism referring to when a female character, who often exists for just this purpose, is killed strictly to motivate a male character. Shmi, you may recall from Phantom Menace, is essentially married to Anakin's deeply flawed Jesus, and whether you remember it or not, the cinematography does. Anakin has to cut his mother off a wooden frame of unclear purpose except to be a cross metaphor, then holds her dying form in a way that is strikingly similar to Michelangelo's statue of Pieta which you may not know by name, but you've probably seen either a picture of or some other piece of art referencing. But we're not done inverting the Jesus story here, because Shmi uses her dying breaths to try to tell Anakin, I love you, three separate times, failing every time as her body shuts down, which feels to me like a bizarre backward echo of St. Peter denying that he even knows Jesus three times in the night of the crucifixion. It's like George Lucas was writing this scene on Easter, but in a year when Easter happened to fall on opposite day. So Shmi is fridged and Anakin goes on a murderous rampage. We cut during this massacre to Yoda, meditating back in the Jedi Temple. He feels Anakin's pain and rage, but he also hears a clip from The Phantom Menace of Qui-Gon saying, Anakin, drop! A couple of times with the drop part cut off. And am I the only one who finds it super distracting they didn't have another copy of Liam Neeson saying Anakin's name urgently and reuse this unrelated sample from the previous movie? Just me? Oh well. Anyway, Yoda apparently hears Qui-Gon's voice from beyond the gray, which gives us our first clue about an off-camera revelation we'll hear about next movie. I've ranted elsewhere in this show about the scene where may comforts Anakin after he murders children, so I'll skip it today and talk instead about how Anakin takes this time to fix some farming equipment and reflect about how he's much better at fixing machines than fixing living things. This rather nicely foreshadows both his eventual fate as more machine now than man and also his determination to stop death in the next movie. Okay, when he says, I will become powerful enough to stop people from dying, it's maybe not so much foreshadowing as it is just a spoiler, but you know what I mean. The other major category of foreshadowing for Anakin's fall is the political conversations he gets into. This starts very early, with he and Obi-Wan talking about how they disagree over whether all politicians are corrupt or just most of them. Anakin calls out Chancellor Palpatine as a good guy, because Lucas is trolling us, and doesn't want to listen to how often senators mostly just listen to the beings who fund their campaigns. He specifically says, not another lecture on the economics of politics. And if you're familiar with U.S. politics, you know that the economics of politics is exactly the thing to care about if you care about democracy. But as the rest of the movie will show us, Anakin doesn't really care about democracy. Padme's successor as the Queen of Naboo, Jamilia, gives us the prophetic line, The day we stop believing democracy can work is the day we lose it. And we'll see this exact moment for Anakin. When he describes his ideal political system to Padme, having everyone sit down and discuss the problem and come to a consensus on a solution, he's surprised to hear that that's what they ostensibly have. But of course, everyone close to the Senate knows that it doesn't really work, and that tells Anakin that what we need is for someone wise to make the senators agree on a solution. It's interesting to me that he specifically doesn't want to be the dictator in his scenario. He has enough self-knowledge to not think of himself as having great and unmatched wisdom, to borrow a phrase. But he's fine with someone having absolute power, which is obviously going to be important later. And it's not hard to see why everyone is so disappointed in democracy these days. We saw the Senate dither in Phantom Menace while Naboo's people were suffering in concentration camps. And right now they're trying to decide if they should form an army to deal with the Separatists, but we'll find out that the army already exists, because those in power wanted it, which is how ailing democracies work. Something else that seems like a giant red flag about the political situation on Coruscant is Mace Windu's casual suggestion that Anakin and Padme should travel as refugees, the better to hide from Padme's enemies. Left unexplained is why there is apparently a constant flow of refugees leaving the capital of the Republic, apparently in every direction. The best case scenario I can come up with is that these are people from worlds that have thrown in with the Separatists and don't actually want to separate. The problem is that it seems like we've got a pretty solid lived-in infrastructure of refugee transports already, and there are so many of these transports that Mace can reasonably assume there will be one leaving for the general direction of Naboo soon enough that Padme, who just survived an assassination attempt, will be able to wait around for one. That suggests just a breathtaking flow of refugees leaving and presumably arriving on Coruscant all the time. It's a big galaxy, but it's hard to imagine how many terrible crises must be going on all the time for this to be the case. Oh, and while we're talking about the refugee transport, R2 can't get served by the Servant Droid on that ship, so the prejudice we've noted from A New Hope clearly predates the Clone Wars. And we'll just ride this segue into talking about the droids for a bit. First of all, before we get away from Anakin completely, let's just pause and note that R2 and Threepio each belong to the wrong half of the central couple. R2 is Padme's property, as shown in Phantom Menace, but routinely accompanies Anakin on his adventures and in his Starfighter. Threepio was hand-built by Anakin, but mostly hangs out with Padme because he's better suited to diplomacy than Jedi stuff. Huh. That out of the way, the droids don't really have a lot to do in this movie, except toward the end in the action scenes in Geonosis, where we have some really weird stuff. We start by having Threepio look at the droid factory and say, machines? Making machines? How perverse. I mean, yes, Threepio, you were hand-built by Space Jesus, but I'm under the impression that was an unusual situation. Surely, automated mass production is the standard in the galaxy far, far away? Except... This is Threepio's first time off Tatooine. Maybe the hard scrabble life of a moisture farmer has suggested to Threepio that all droids are hand-built, probably from scavenged parts, and this is the first he'd ever seen or heard of an economically advanced society, by which I mean the cushy, oppressive side of capitalism. But before we have too much of a chance to reflect on that, Thrupio is whisked away by a large droid that kind of looks to me like it's trying to change his diaper on a built-in changing table. Is that just me? He also helpfully yells out, it's a nightmare, before going through the whole experience with the head swapping and becoming a battle droid that really doesn't make any objective sense unless it's literally a dream. So that's my headcanon. 3PO dreams everything that happened to him in the factory, and you can't convince me otherwise. Meanwhile, R2 gets in his contractually required rescue of an organic when he saves Padme from molten metal, then goes to wake 3PO up. Moving on to elements of the film that definitely do happen, Obi-Wan has an interesting line to walk here. On the one hand, he is Mentor to Anakin, Brash Young Jedi, TM. So he has to be the Older Voice of Reason, tiny R inside a circle. But on the other hand, he's not really a full grown-up either. Yoda teases him a couple of times, and he refers to the Jedi Temple at one point as the Old Folks Home. What's especially weird about that one is that he's talking to his astromech droid, R4, so it's not like he's really joking. He's giving the droid an instruction, and the droid just presumably knows that this is his code for the Jedi Temple. Another fun bit of storytelling that occurs in the lightsaber props is that Obi-Wan still isn't using his final saber at this point. you remember that he lost one to Darth Maul in the last movie, but the one he's carrying here is some other saber, even though there's a running joke where he keeps telling Anakin to hold on to his. So the dedicated lightsaber prop enthusiast, you know, all both of them, can read Kenobi's comments here as ironic, since we know that he's going to lose at least one more saber between now and Revenge of the Sith. That prop looks like the one he has in A New Hope, so I assume that is his final adult sword. Another bit of metaphor through model design is Obi-Wan's starfighter. The fighter itself is a fairly basic triangular affair, but what's interesting to me about it is that the hyperdrive ring. Depending on how much of a spaceship nerd you are, you may or may not have noticed that these Jedi starfighters can't actually fly through hyperspace without being docked inside this large ring-shaped external engine, and it's fair to wonder why. You can give a pretty basic in-world explanation that hyperdrives small enough for starfighters are expensive or whatever. But on the metaphoric level, I think it stands in for the symbiotic relationship I talked about in the last episode between the Republic and the Jedi. The Jedi and their starfighters are very capable on an individual level, but they simply don't have the reach and infrastructure to accomplish things on an interstellar scale without the government bureaucracy slash hyperdrive rings. As with all my weird metaphoric tangents, your mileage may vary. As for Obi-Wan's actual story beats, he stops by Dex's diner, which is pretty obviously intended to be a diner like we might see in any movie about Americana but here's probably American Graffiti, Lucas's movie right before Star Wars. Dex is an interesting character, and I would honestly enjoy seeing some more stories about him and all the adventures he apparently had before becoming a short-order chef. His line about droids focusing only on the symbols and lacking wisdom feels like a foreshadowing to the clones-versus-droids dichotomy we're going to get in the Clone Wars. As does Obi-Wan's much darker line, if droids could think there'd be none of us here, would there? Dex apparently thinks of droids as amusingly limited, as befits a being who owns some droids to help him his restaurant. Obi-Wan thinks of droids as deadly enemies, only kept in check by their limitations. But he still uses an astromech droid regularly. But the part of the conversation that makes no sense to me whatsoever is when Dex is talking about the Kaminoan cloners, whose friendliness depends. On what, Dex? And how good your manners are. And how big your... pocketbook is. It's not just me, right? Dex is totally going to say dick and then change to pocketbook, right? But that just raises the question, why? Are the Kaminoans just super down to fuck? I don't have the answer, nor can I say with certainty that Dex has not himself fucked a Camino in. To be perfectly honest, the copy of the screenplay that I'm looking at doesn't even have that ellipsis, so I'm guessing that the suggestive pause was ad-libbed by the actor, and Lucas thought it was funny enough to keep it. But it does leave us in this weird story space. Camino, as the birthplace of a million clones, does carry a sexual, or at least reproductive, aura. But the actual environment here is very clinical and hospital-like. And no judgment if that's your kink, but it's not how movies typically portray sexiness. Similarly, the Kaminoans themselves are a mix of conventionally attractive and very alien. The male and female Kaminoan characters we meet are metaphorically the parents of the clone army, and the movie wants us to notice them as sexual beings, even in this very sterile-seeming environment. So after Obi-Wan talks to the Kaminoans, we meet Jango Fett properly. Jango feels very much like a do-over for Lucas, who has said he had no idea that Boba Fett would be so popular. So we get to humanize Django, give him some humble-sounding lines about being a simple man trying to make his way in the universe, and then we have him demonstrate that he's basically an even match with Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jedi Knight, in a one-on-one fight, despite his lack of force powers. We even go a step further on the humanization by showing him tired and relieved when he thinks Obi-Wan is dead after the fight, and apparently genuinely affectionate to his son. Hilariously, despite Lucas's stated wish that he'd given Boba Fett a better death, recall that Boba is swallowed by a huge ground mouth after his jetpack malfunctions, Django's death is mauled by a rhinoceros causing his jetpack to malfunction. I mean, yes, Mace Windu also decapitates him, but Lucas apparently can't resist throwing in that nature defeats an overreliance reliance technology beat whenever he can. So as long as we're here on Geonosis, let's talk about some of the stuff that happens there. First of all, to my half-assed knowledge of Greek roots, the name Geonosis is basically rock knowledge, which I suppose alludes to the fact that Geonosians live underground? So in the same way that Phantom Menace included a chariot race, Attack of the Clones has a scene in a gladiator pit which makes me wonder if Lucas was consciously evoking old Hollywood to give us a sense that these prequel movies take place even further in the past than his previous long-time-ago movies. Another fun element of the Gladiator fight against the monsters is how each of our three heroes winds up fighting a monster that is sort of reflective of them. The easiest and weakest of these is that Podme is up against a cat monster, properly called a Nexu, and pop culture just loves to make cats women and women cats. And of course, how fitting that the trait her monster is based on is just the smurfette principle all over again. She's the girl, so she fights a monster that's supposed to reflect girlness. Obi-Wan goes up against a long-necked crab bug called an acklay. I say it's reflective of him because it has strong defenses and attacks very precisely, poking each claw like a rapier, not slashing wildly. And Anakin is up against the aforementioned rhinoceros monster because he's a walking disaster that rushes headlong into everything, leaving a trail of destruction and regret in his wake. It's kind of perfect. So eventually our baby Rhino runs directly into Count Dooku, who first zaps him and then cuts his arm off because Dooku does not play. He's also a wealthy white man with impeccable manners leading an armed secession. so it's not too much of a stretch to link him to the Antebellum South, even if the accent is different. He's also a politician in a movie that mostly distrusts politicians, and owns a spaceship that is also a sailboat in which he is too good to pilot himself because he's a gentleman. He is a super elitist in every possible way. But like Django Fett, He's also humanized enough that we see him look relieved and tired once he defeats Anakin. Dooku has also very much drunk the Kool-Aid on the dark side. He talks about how his powers are greater than any Jedi's. Left unexplored is whether he thinks this just because the dark side gives him access to powers he wouldn't have learned under the Jedi, or if he thinks it's actually flat out more powerful. Like, does he think that the dark side is half the crayons in the box, which the Jedi stupidly won't use, even though it has cool colors like Sith lightsaber pink and creepy eye yellow? Or does he think that the dark side is something altogether different and more potent, like a Sharpie? And no, I'm not writing this on a table covered in my daughter's art supplies, why do you ask? We don't know what he thinks, but we can be fairly confident that he's wrong about being stronger than any Jedi once Yoda comes along. So after all these exhausting encounters, Dooku heads back to Coruscant, which is a pretty baller move for the leader of a faction that has apparently just formally declared war on the Republic. I also enjoy that the part of the planet he goes to is currently experiencing twilight, which thematically underscores the darkness and evil revealing here in this meeting with Darth Sidious, and also suggests the twilight of the Republic itself which is only about three years away from becoming the Empire. We'll even reinforce that point in one of the final shots of the movie as we play the Imperial march over the legions of clone troopers and contemplate the coming war. Alright, let's talk about this film's intertextual points, or at least some of them, because there are quite a few and most of them are kind of trivial. First, we get a surprisingly large number of Phantom Menace references that don't really accomplish anything. Obi-Wan tells Anakin to stay away from power couplings, similar to how Anakin told Jar Jar. During that same air chase across Coruscant, we see a couple of aliens from a species that were originated for the pod race in episode 1, presumably to link this movie's speed base set piece with that one. Anakin knows where to target Trade Federation ships to blow them up faster. Nothing super significant, but all falling into some version of Lucas's idea that Star Wars is like poetry. It rhymes. In that same rhyming category, we see Thripio working on the very moisture farm that will buy him again in A New Hope, and Luke's Uncle Owen asking a Skywalker where he's going as he leaves that farm. Finally, we see that the exercise Luke was doing in A New Hope with the blast shield over his eyes, blocking the remote stun blast with his lightsaber, is something that five-year-olds learn to do. On the one hand, it does make sense that Ben started Luke with the basics, but on the other hand, it makes Luke seem substantially less impressive. It's an odd choice. On to my favorite part. I've alluded before to my hero worship of Ben Burtt, the sound designer for most of these movies, but my single favorite sound effect in all of Star Wars occurs in Attack of the Clones. It's the seismic charges that Jango Fett tries to kill Obi-Wan with in the asteroid field. I recommend a theater-style sound system with a lot of bass to appreciate it properly. Oh, and an honorable mention to Anakin's response when Dooku says, I would have thought you'd have learned your lesson. And he replies, I am a slow learner. I would love to see more of this cocky yet somehow self-deprecating version of Anakin. But this is basically it, except for maybe a line or two in episode three. So those are my thoughts on Attack of the Clones, but I'd love to hear what I missed. Uh, You can at me at at rhybrid on Twitter, or come to the Chipperish Discord room if you're a patron. If you're not a patron, you can solve that problem at patreon.com slash chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.